can't wait to dive into some hot potatoes now. Uh, or maybe I can. <laughs> we are uh, in this series that we call Hot Potatoes, and we call it that because there are these controversial issues that we face in society from time to time. And churches, if they address them at all, they deal with them very briefly, and then they get rid of them like a hot potato because it's just it's too touchy it's too sensitive if we linger too long on this issue we might offend somebody and uh, we have decided here at the Lamb's Chapel we're just not going to worry too much about whether or not we offend man we're going to err on the side of not offending God how about that because uh, he outranks us all, and so we want to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. And the issue we're going to look at tonight is one of these issues. It can be a divisive issue, and it's an extremely important issue that we hear from the Lord on because every other voice right now in the world seems to be in unison on this, and they are all shouting the same thing. And we are inundated with the message about this topic, and you can't get away from it. It's in the culture. It's in the media, it's on uh, television, and it's in the movies. And if you have kids and they watch Disney Plus, they're going to be confronted with this topic in some fashion or another. So you better keep a watchful eye on that. And there are days and there are entire months that are dedicated uh, to this particular topic, to celebrating this topic. And of course, this topic is homosexuality. And it is a reality in our culture and in the time period in which we live. It has always been with mankind, but it does seem to be quite prevalent right now. And if you are a Christian that has interpreted the word of God literally, you may have come to the conclusion that romantic relationships, specifically marriage, is to be between a man and a woman. Amen. And if you hold that view, you are labeled a homophobe. You are labeled hopelessly antiquated and irrelevant. You're a dinosaur. You're a bigot. And so you get all of these labels because you hold to this view. And every time society seeks to normalize an issue that is traditionally deemed to be uh, biblically wrong, it does one or two things that I just want to share with you right as we begin here. Number one, it will attack the Bible as a man-made, out-of-date, morally questionable document that should have no bearing whatsoever on our lives today. That's one method. The other MO is to twist or revise Scripture to suit the current moral climate. Both of those are enforced today. Both of those serve the same purpose of, uh, of trying to destroy our overarching message in the Word of God, and both of them can be answered effectively. And we're going to attempt to do that tonight. We're going to look at the Word of God itself to see what, it, in fact, it does say on this matter. Now, I want you to know I don't intend to make the central message of the Lamb's Chapel that homosexuality is evil. I don't intend to mean to say that uh, all of the gays and lesbians in the world are, are the source of all the evil in creation. That is not my message today, but I do consider this to be a matter, a matter that is serious to God. And as such, it is something that affects the souls of men. And so I want to address it as God would have me address it. And I want to do so truthfully, and I want to do so lovingly. And I would submit to you that to be truthful on this matter is to be loving on this matter. If I were to be silent on this, if I were to soften on this, if I were to be vague about it, if I were to never address it whatsoever, that would be the most unloving thing I could ever do to someone who struggled with this particular issue. And so I want to be loving and to be loving is to be truthful. And so we're going to approach this humbly, and I'm going to unpack what the Bible teaches about homosexuality, and I'm going to do it tonight by addressing four common objections to the traditional biblical view on this particular lifestyle. But first, I want to pray. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, be with us as we open your word and as we hear from you today, God, as we as we journey around the scriptures to see what you have to say on this matter that you say is so important. And I just pray that you'll give us grace, that you will give us compassion for those who are enslaved by this, Lord, because you love them. You love them so dearly. And they need to see the truth on this matter, but they need to see that Jesus is the only way and that you are the deliverer, that you can break chains. You broke them for me. You broke them for others in this room. And chains can take various forms. They don't have to be homosexuality. We're all in chains, God, when we come into this world. Chains of sin. And it doesn't really matter uh, 
what we are chained up by God if we don't know Jesus. We're all destined for the same place. And so you have made a way, and we're grateful. And we give you glory and honor in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's look now as we start. Arguments posed to Christians about homosexuality. Uh, I'm going to tackle these one at a time. The first argument goes like this. Maybe you've heard this. It says, the Bible is an irrelevant bunch of made-up or error-filled stories. We shouldn't believe it or live our lives according to it. And I will say this. This position, this argument gets points for one thing. In your notes, it gets points for being intellectually honest. That's an intellectually honest Argument because if the Bible is made up, then I submit it is logical not to base your life on it. If you really believe that the Bible is just a bunch of made up stories, why would you? And so I, I totally understand if someone really has rejected the Bible as just the creation of man, as a bunch of fairy tales, I wouldn't live my life on it based on it either if I believed that. And so that's your uh, predisposed view. Uh, then you don't, you don't need to distort Scripture. You don't need to twist Scripture in any way. You just don't buy it. Fair enough. Dead wrong, but fair enough. And this is why I would submit that Christians must consistently hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible is the inspired word of God. You've got, Christian, you've got to believe that. You've got to lead with that. You've got to hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. There is no flaw in Scripture because it is the word of God. Believers do themselves and the kingdom a great disservice when they're open to the idea that God didn't inspire 100% of Scripture. If I don't believe that the foundation of my faith is the very word of God and that it reflects the character of its author, then what right do I have to comment in any capacity on how people should live their lives? And so we've got to acknowledge the authority of Scripture as believers. Uh, now, obviously, there are arguments that counter this argument. If, if somebody says the Bible is just full of made-up stories, listen, there is a mountain of evidence as to the historical veracity of scripture. And by the way, if you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with, is the Bible the word of God? Is the Bible uh, inerrant or not? Let me just direct you to the last series that we just finished a few weeks ago. We called it the thoughts of God. We dealt with inerrancy. We dealt with inspiration. We dealt with the reliability and the historicity of scripture. And so you could check all that out on the Lamb's Chapel YouTube channel. And I encourage you to do that. But uh, I can understand why anyone who doesn't embrace the Bible would not want to reject homosexuality out of hand. Because when you take away the source of authority, then anything goes. I would say, why stop with homosexuality? There's a whole lot of stuff in there that traditional Christians would deem to be sinful that you can just say, why not? I mean, if the Bible isn't of God, then, you know, Katie, bar the door. I mean, we could do whatever we want, but there's a problem. And it's this in your notes, just because you don't live under the authority of scripture, that doesn't mean it's not authoritative because God's word is God's word, whether you recognize that or not. I used this illustration not long ago. Burglar breaks into your house. You pull a gun out of the nightstand, point it at him. He laughs and says, I don't believe in guns. Oh, you will. You, you, you about to. All right? So the word of, well, there's a day that's coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and everything in his word will be affirmed by every soul, uh, redeemed or not. And so that is the answer to that argument. Let's look at argument number two. Argument number two goes like this. People that have used the Bible to justify racism, sexism, slavery, and homophobia is just another example of that. Have you heard this argument before? People, people use the Bible to do a whole mess of bad stuff. First of all, let me, let me just get this out of the way. The word homophobia, listen, have you ever been called a homophobe? Has your position been labeled homophobic? Let me encourage you to reject that term. That is a man-made term. That is not anything that we should acknowledge. That is a cultural term. Uh, 
I, I suppose it would mean fear of homosexuals because phobia is fear and they're taking that prefix homo. I don't know why they think homosexuals have a monopoly on the Latin prefix of homo because uh, homo in Latin merely means human. And so I think literally the word would mean fear of homo sapiens, <laughs> which is just silly. We don't fear that. But it has come to be applied to basically anybody who opposes homosexuality on any level, and I think that's unfortunate. I don't fear homosexuals. I'll tell you what I fear. I fear for their souls. I fear for their souls because as a Christian, I am to love all people, and so I'm concerned for them out of a, out of a heart of love for them uh, that they be deceived into thinking that God does not care about whether they engage in a lifestyle that is particularly destructive. I fear for them. But back to this argument. Is the Bible used to justify awful things? Absolutely. There's no question. It, it, it's long uh, been used to justify bad behavior. There's no doubt that's still going on today in some quarters. However, in your notes, Scripture is often used to justify horrible things it doesn't condone. You don't blame the Bible just because somebody uses it to justify uh, bad behavior. They're not interpreting it correctly. To say that those who teach homosexuality is wrong to put them in the same league with slaveholders, that's utterly ridiculous. And frankly, this is just a, a very common allegation. You hear this all the time. Uh, they try to just cast out everything. They try to just throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, as far as the Bible's concerned, because of people that they've come into contact with. And they blame bad behavior on the word of God, and they try to dismiss it altogether. And they often bring up slavery. And they say, see, the Bible never condemns slavery. Have you heard that? That the Bible never condemns slavery. Is that true, that the Bible never condemns slavery? I will say that when slavery is addressed in Scripture, it's often in the context of slave owners treating their slaves uh, well, or it's in the context of Christian slaves honoring and respecting those in authority over them. And so we read that, and we don't see a condemnation on the surface of that, and that is confusing for a lot of folks particularly because of our perception of slavery here in America. When we think of slavery, what do we think of? We think of, we think of the, the Civil War and prior to that, before emancipation. We think of slavery as a very race-based, uh, inhumane thing in, in our American history that we fought a war to eradicate. That is not the paradigm of slavery in the Bible. When you see slavery in the Bible, more often than not, we're not talking about anything that's race-based. We're not talking about anything that we are familiar with in American history. We're, we're talking largely about something that is economically driven, that there's a wealth of evidence to say that people would enter into willfully because they could not afford to pay debt. Had nothing to do with the color of their skin, had everything to do with their economic status. And so they would choose to enter into an indentured servitude to pay off debt or in order to, to survive and make a living when they could not afford to on their own. And so they would enter into slavery. Now that said, nowhere in the Bible does it advocate that even that kind of slavery. It certainly does not advocate uh, for anyone who is enslaved against their will. And I would point you to the following passage, Exodus 21, verse 16. This is what you can show anybody who says that the Bible does not condemn slavery. Here's what it says. Whoever steals a man and sells him, what does it sound like? And anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Shall be put to death. And so the Bible clearly condemns the capture and enslavement of someone against their will upon threat of death, seems very clear. And so the slavery comparison kind of goes out the window. What about sexism? What about sexism? Some people point out, well, it says in the Bible that wives are to submit to their husbands. Is that sexism? Well, that's a big topic. That seems like another hot potato sermon to me. 
don't know if we get time to get into all the ins and outs of that. I will say uh, that the short answer is that biblical marriage roles have nothing to do with the superiority of one gender over another, okay? They have everything to do with the unique design of God within the context of marriage. And so it really does not compare. To compare uh, an opposition to homosexuality, uh, to, to racism, to slavery, to sexism, that, my friends, does not hold up in any sense unless, unless hatred or violence enters the picture. Because scripture forbids that we hate Scripture forbids that we are violent against someone with whom we disagree. Here's what it says in your notes. While the Bible clearly teaches homosexuality is wrong, it never advocates hating or hurting homosexuals, okay? To the contrary, we are to love all people, amen? Does God love all people? For God so loved the world. That's all unbelieving people. He loves them all, and loving involves speaking the truth, which we are seeking to do tonight. But this notion of loving people, do we have love? Do we have respect for all people? Do we respect them? Do we respect their rights? That is the argument that you often hear leading up to the Supreme Court decision that uh, legalized gay marriage. That was the argument. We had the decision of Obersfell versus Hodges that legalized gay marriage here in America, and you would always hear that argument. Don't gays and lesbians have the right to marry just like straight people? And the, the traditional view uh, that opposed that, that said no, that view was rooted in the definition of marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman. That was the argument. That we, we No, they don't have the right to marry within the same gender because of the definition of marriage, that it's between opposing genders. The world said, no problem, we'll just change the definition. And that's what they've done. And, and that's what they do repeatedly. You see this as their playbook with, with a bevy of things. We're going to redefine everything. We're going to redefine what a man is. We're going to redefine what a woman is. And you see this progressively... Alter the word meaning can be whatever you want. But the problem is, we didn't create marriage. God created marriage. Just like God created men, God created women, God created marriage. And you don't get to define something you didn't create. And so it's very important we understand that. And so when Christians talk about the biblical definition of marriage, when we talk about the sanctity of marriage, here's the typical comebacks. You've got a, a group of progressives who would never crack open a Bible on their own for any reason, but they will to try to find some kind of a comeback argument. They'll, they will, they'll dig to find something that they think is ridiculous to throw it back in your face because they think, well, probably not all these Christians read their Bibles either. And they're kind of right about that. And so they have a series of gotchas. And I just want to walk through some of them because they say in your notes, if, if, if same-sex marriage is not allowed by Scripture, you, you, you people who claim to hold to the sanctity of marriage, hey, hey, what about concubines? What about concubines? And they're very smug about that because concubines appear in the Bible. What are concubines? Well, in the Old Testament time, that was a sort of a permanent mistress that a man might have and they'd live with this guy in sort of a, a second wife status they might even bear him children often that was the case and so progressives will put out memes where they list a bunch of names that they dig up out of scripture of of guys that had concubines but here's the deal in your notes scripture never ever endorses concubines and uh, furthermore where they appear there's trouble there's trouble I don't care who it is, whether it's Abraham or Gideon or Nahor or Caleb or Manasseh. These are names I've seen on some memes that progressives have put out. Solomon. Solomon had over 300 concubines. Can you imagine? I can't handle one woman, folks. My goodness. But some of these names, I love it when progressives throw a name out of the Bible out there. Well, what about Manasseh? Uh, do you not realize Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history? I've even seen him cite Belshazzar. Uh, that wasn't even a Jew. He was a Babylonian pagan. That's ridiculous. And, and as for Solomon, 
Yeah, he had 300 concubines. If you read up on Solomon, much of his life, he was wandering spiritually. The whole book of Ecclesiastes. You don't apply all of that book. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. This is a man who had lost touch with anything of spiritual value in his life. He was in utter disobedience for a lot of his life. And so we, we can dismiss that argument. But when you think about Solomon, they also point out, well, not only did he have 300 concubines, he had 700 wives. This guy never learned. And this brings up the next gotcha, right? They say, what about multiple wives? In your notes, multiple wives. And they'll list a whole slew of names. And here's my response. In your notes, scripture is full of flawed people. It's full. Aren't you glad? I mean, we don't have, it's not filled with perfect people for us to be intimidated by. When you read about Samson, you're like, all right, okay, the Lord can use me. Look at all those flaws. God can use anyone. But here we go using flawed people as examples that the Bible invalidates itself. Folks, uh, you know, when we talk about the, the examples of people who, who, who were polygamous that had multiple wives, the first one in history was Lamech. Lamech had multiple wives. Uh, he was descended from Cain, the world's first murderer. So he was not of good stock. Uh, you, who else do you got there? Uh, Esau. Esau. He had multiple wives. He was foolish. He, he forfeited his birthright to Jacob. His whole lineage, the Edomites, washed out in history. They were looked down upon by God. Uh, we've already talked about the flaws of Solomon. Uh, Rehoboam is another example people cite. Hello, that's the guy that divided the kingdom into northern and southern. He worshiped idols. I mean, what, what, what a disaster. Some people cite Ahab. That was a wicked king of the north. He was pagan. His wife, Jezebel, is pretty much synonymous with evil, okay? And so the Bible is filled with, with horrible people. And it's also filled with flawed people that the Lord would use. But uh, let me tell you this, in your notes, there's no mistaking throughout Scripture that God's design for marriage has always been monogamy. And that's not a kind of wood, okay? <laughs> monogamy. One man, one woman. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh, not two flesh, right? This isn't Dr. Seuss, one flesh, two flesh, red flesh, blue flesh, no. One flesh, one man, one woman, and ideally one lifetime. One lifetime. So we see, and also we'll, we'll see when we get into Leviticus, it, the law forbids multiple wives. It actually does. When we move on, another argument, they say, well, what about Abraham and Sarah's handmaid? Yeah? You, you, you say marriage is, is sacred. What about Abraham and Hagar? Huh? And they look at that story. You know this story. God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you into a mighty nation. Your descendants are going to number like the stars, like the grains of sand on the seashore. There's a problem. Abraham was older than dirt. Sarah was older than dirt, long past childbearing years. And so they're trying to believe God's promise. Years go by, no kids. Sarah has a bright idea. I've got it, honey. Why don't you have sex with my handmaid? And Abraham said, I can do that. <laughs> if you say so. All right. But here's the deal. In your notes, the context of Genesis 16 is that Abraham and Sarah had a lack of faith in God's plan. That was the whole point of that. There's a Hulu show right now that some of you won't admit to watching called The Handmaid's Tale. And it's this dystopian future that is uh, based on, it, it's the idea there's this religious community that takes over America. And all of their women are barren, and so they kidnap all the fertile women and force them into servitude, and they have to bear children for all of the, the religious types and stuff like that. And it, it, their belief is supposedly rooted in the Old Testament. No one is ever supposed to take that behavior and apply it practically in any sense. That would be ludicrous. But they disobediently resort to human means to accomplish what God said he and he alone would accomplish. So this is never condoned in scripture. They say then, uh, another, another gotcha they think is, what about leveret marriage? 
Levered marriage. You say, what in the world is levered marriage? Well, it's depicted in the following passage, Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. Let's read this. It says, if, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and he has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And people read that, progressives with an agenda, and they say, see, see, the, 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 Bible, the Bible advocates that a childless widow be required to marry her brother-in-law and she's got to submit to him sexually how horrible is that and I would say that to discredit opposition to homosexuality by pointing out biblical instances of leveret marriage shows a colossal ignorance of the culture and the time in which that was written See, you, you, you've got to understand that time period. That was not the 21st century. I know that we like to take our modern sensibilities and lay them as a grid on Scripture and crush the Word of God on that grid like we're at Waffle House and just slice off all the edges that we don't like. No. No, we, we've got to understand. In the Bible, you've got to think outside your box a little bit. Leveret marriage was God's way, in your notes, it ensured provision for a childless widow. And by the way, in that day, to be childless, that was, that, it was incredibly undesirable. You know, the, for the woman to be able to have children was, was an honor for her. Like, and the women considered it to be so. So it endured provision. And by the way, if, if a woman became a widow, the women in that day were not equipped to earn their own living. You understand? And so what would often happen to a widow? They would die. They would die. They would starve. So we're ensuring provision as a merciful act to the widow, and it also allowed property to remain with the descendants of the deceased. All right? And so you've you got to understand there are cultural considerations here in Scripture. Furthermore, I would add this in your notes, that no scriptural evidence uh, is in this, that sexual activity in a leveret marriage was anything other than mutual. All right? There, there is nothing there that would lead us to conclude that she just had to lay down and take it. All right? There's nothing indicating that. Forced sexual behavior is never condoned in Scripture which answers the next gotcha, which is they always throw this, what about a rapist and his victim? And they cite Deuteronomy 22. Now this one gets a little tricky, so you gotta stay with me. Deuteronomy 22, verse 28 and 29. Do we have that? It says, if a man, there we go, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. And so the progressive crowd looks at that and says, see, see, this is a virgin that is raped, has to marry her rapist. And all he has to do is pay her dad some money for you know, property loss. What's that about? This is one of the most common passages used by skeptics to say that the Bible is backward and that we shouldn't pay any attention to it. But wait a minute here. This situation, there may be more to this than we derive at first glance. It seems to mirror another passage in Exodus 22. Let me show you Exodus 22, 16, 17. Here's what it says. It says, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give her the bride, give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. And so we've got a parallel there, but there's a significant difference in English in the verbiage used. You've got that word seduces there. So in your notes, here's what I submit to you, is that Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29 deals with a particular instance and likely refers to seduction, to seduction, not rape. You say, well, what about the word seizes in Deuteronomy 22? In verse 28 and 29, you got that word seizes. That is the Hebrew word tafas, tafas. 
It can also be translated take hold of, all right? Uh, it, is, it is a word, in English we see the word seizes in another passage just before that, which I'm about to show you in Deuteronomy 22 in verse 25. Look at this. It says in verse 25, but if in the open country, this is a different scenario, if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her, same English word, seizes her and lies with her, then the man who lay with her shall die. All right, so we've got a different, we've got a different consequence for him. Why? The word seizes in that verse is not the same word as the other passage that we already read. The previous word was tafas. This word is chazak in the Hebrew, okay? And that does not mean uh, to take hold of. It means forces. There is, there is a forcefulness to it. He forces her to do something. Look at how it's described. If we go on, verse 26. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense. It says, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Verse 27, because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like rape. That passage is obviously rape, different from chapter 22, verse 28 and 29. And so in your notes, the previous passage that we just read vividly describes rape and commands death for the rapist. This book is consistent on this matter. It never condones uh, uh, coercion with regard to sexual activity. And so you've got all of these gotchas they try to throw at you. None of these people know the Bible. None of them have ever cared to research scripture. They're just looking for arguments to make you feel like you're an idiot because you oppose homosexuality, okay? But this book is consistent throughout in terms of the design of marriage and how we are to relate to one another as a man and a woman. The third argument I want to look at here. Christians pick and choose what scriptures to obey. According to Leviticus, eating shellfish is wrong, yet nobody seems to have a problem with that. Have you heard that argument before? Huh? You try to make some moral stand and people throw that in your face. Well, you know, there's a lot of stuff in your book that you don't do. You know, it, 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 commands, it commands that you shouldn't eat certain shellfish. I saw you at that seafood place last week. I've seen you eating a good shrimp cocktail. I know that you like that stuff. It's, it's hypocritical, therefore, to say that homosexuality is wrong. Listen, I'm going to put Leviticus 18.22 on the, on the screen here. Here's what it says. It says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Now, I agree with that verse. However, I will admit to you that whenever I hear a Christian make an argument about homosexuality using only the Old Testament, I cringe a little bit. And I don't cringe because I think the Old Testament is irrelevant, and I don't cringe because I think we ought to unhitch from it, you understand. I'm merely saying that if your reading of the Old Testament is the only reason that you believe homosexuality is wrong or really anything is wrong, you better prepare to deal with people who are gonna come at you with the shrimp argument, okay? You better prepare to deal with people who come at you and say, well, the Bible says not to mix fibers of your clothing, so you better say goodbye to that polyester blend, all right? What are you, what are you gonna do when you're encountering something like that? Uh, context is everything. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. Where are we getting this, this prohibition about homosexuality? We get that from Leviticus. What, what do we call Leviticus? It's part of the law. What was the purpose of the law? It's to confirm man's undeniable need for a savior. That's the purpose of the law. Salvation is unobtainable through works. All the law was intended to do was to show that nobody could keep the law. Everybody's condemned. Everybody's sinful. Everybody needs a savior. Nobody can do it on their own. It was, the law was never intended by God to save. It was only to show us our need to be saved. And there were elements of the law that would point ahead to a savior. The savior came. His name was Jesus. Now we have 
Not the old covenant, we've got the new covenant, okay? But that said, in your notes, the New Testament, which is the new covenant, takes precedence but does not invalidate the Old Testament. It doesn't invalidate it in its entirety. Uh, The Old Covenant, the law, the Mosaic law, part of which we just read, is featured in the Old Testament. The New Testament deals with the New Covenant, grace. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, what he did. And so when we look at the Old Testament, we are understanding the context of the law in the Old Testament. Now, let me explain the law. There were Scholars say there's three subdivisions of the law. I'm just going to walk through them real quick here. The first subdivision are the civil laws. The civil laws. These laws were given by God to Israel. Very important. To a specific people. To do what? To govern society. All right? They were given by God to Israel. They served a unique purpose in a unique time for a specific nation. Okay? Civil laws. We base some of our laws on them, but those laws were given to Israel. Second subdivision are the ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws, what are these? The purpose of these are discussed in Leviticus. These laws are given by God again to Israel, not everybody, to Israel, to do what? To outline sacrifices, diet, and observances. There were feasts that they had to observe, holy days. All of that was done away with. When? When Christ came. When Christ was crucified. Why did they stop? Why are we to stop sacrifices once Christ came? Because he was the ultimate sacrifice. All right? Those sacrifices pointed ahead to him. He came. Nothing to point ahead to now. He's already come. And so included in all that were some very practical, hygienic elements of the law that had benefits for people. Uh, they were designed to protect man, preserve healthy living, etc. In that, you had some dietary guidelines. Don't eat this. Don't eat this. Yes, shellfish, because in that time, there were diseases one could contract doing that. And so these were part of that law. They're no longer in use today. But most of the laws based around worship were pointed ahead to Jesus. Third subdivision of the law, The moral laws, the moral laws. These laws defined sin for all people, not just Israel, all people. Are they still relevant today? Yes, and they are summed up not as part of the law. It's not that we follow the law today, but these moral laws are summed up in the commands of Jesus Christ. And so when we obey them today, we don't obey them because they are the old Mosaic law. We obey them out of love and a sense of honor to Christ because there are moral commands in the Old Testament that that nobody debates. Everybody wants to say, well, you can't, you know, it's okay to eat shrimp now, so it's okay to be gay. Uh, Okay, well, one of the laws of the Old Testament is that you should not lie. Is that still wrong? Um, Is it still wrong to murder Is it wrong to rape people? Yes, absolutely. Uh, How about, should we continue to love God? That was commanded in the Old Testament. Maybe we're not required to love God anymore. So regarding the moral law, the only thing that's really changed are the specifics of the punishment for disobedience that you read about in the Old Testament. But, But the precepts, the commands, they still matter to God. And you see this reiterated all throughout The New Testament, the moral admonitions of the Old Testament are repeated and valued by the likes of Jesus. And and so uh, when we look at that, we could see it in specificity in the writings of Paul. And I want to show you in Romans 1. It says, for this reason, verse 20, 20, uh, what is it, 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Look at verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. All right, very clear there. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy, verse uh, nine and 10. Understanding this, the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless 
and disobedient. And then he, he rattles off a whole list of who the disobedient are. He says the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, the murderers, the sexually immoral. And then men who practice homosexuality. Is it still a sin? According to Paul, yeah, still a sin. Even in Jude, the brother of Jesus himself, verse seven, he says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember that story? You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? What was, what was one of the chief sins of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, it's in the name of the town. This is where we get the term sodomy. It's from the primary practice of Sodom and Gomorrah and these surrounding cities, which likewise, Jude says, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. If you recall the story, you've got Lot, Abraham's nephew. Where does he live? He lives in Sodom. Angels come to visit Lot. They're inside his home. You've got the men of Sodom practically banging his door down. They want in there because those men, uh, they, they, they see young men who are truly angels, but they just see handsome young men and they say, let us in that we may know them. And in the original language, the connotation is a carnal sexual knowledge. And so this is, this is condemned not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And yet, Apologists for the gay lifestyle dismiss the Old Testament and they even dismiss the New Testament if it wasn't uttered by one person because this is argument number four. They say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Have you heard that before? Oh, well, Jesus never said anything. I saw one liberal pastor say, this is the totality of everything that Jesus said on homosexuality. And then he just stood back and was silent. And the progressive audience went crazy and clapped and applauded and affirmed. Well, let me, let me just respond to that. First of all, in your notes, we don't have everything Jesus said. Furthermore, nothing needed to be added to what had already been said, okay? Do we not have everything that Jesus ever said? Uh, well, no, but, but uh, the, the gospel writers, uh, in fact, in John 21, 25, he says Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, uh, I suppose even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. So is it possible that he addressed this? Absolutely it's possible. But he didn't have to because there were others who did. And here's what I, what I believe. We don't read just the, the red letters of scripture. There, sometimes Bibles come with red letters. The, the words of Christ are in red. There's a movement in Christianity called red letter Christianity and all they care about is what Jesus said. Everything else doesn't really matter. Here's what I know. God inspired the entire Bible. And so whether it came from the words of Christ, Moses, Peter, Paul, it's all from, from the mind of God. And so, yes, it's possible that Jesus said more, but it's not necessary because enough has already been said on this matter. You'll notice Jesus never addressed pedophilia. Jesus never said anything about bestiality. Should we wonder about his stances on those issues? No, I don't think so. And by the way, in your notes, Jesus did affirm traditional marriage. He is on the record about this. Where? In Matthew 19, in verse four, he answered, have you not read? He was always asking the Pharisees, hey, don't you read your Bibles, boys? What's going on here? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Hey, hey, how many genders is that? That's two. Two and only two. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. There's your two genders again. Even mom and dad got it right. And hold fast to his wife. I know we like to say that could mean a man or a woman, but that's a feminine term. And the two shall become one flesh. And so this agrees with all the other passages regarding heterosexual marriage as the only appropriate place for sexual activity. The heart of his words here uh, really deal with the issue of divorce, but don't miss the fact that in addressing that issue, Assumptions are made about the vital definition of marriage 
It's between a man and a woman, and that's it. So Christ affirms the Mosaic law on this matter. And in your notes, being Jewish, he was a, I know this is a shock to people, he was Jewish. So Jesus would have affirmed the moral law where? In Leviticus. In Leviticus. He would have absolutely affirmed that. He would have been fine with the moral law as laid out by God. He didn't determine, he didn't consider it to be a means of salvation. It was never God's intent for it to be a means of salvation. The ceremonial parts of it pointed ahead to him. He was there. We might not follow those ceremonial elements today, uh, but he did not trumpet the law as backward while he walked the earth. And Leviticus says that, that God finds homosexuality detestable. You say, well, he says the same thing about shellfish. So why is it okay to eat shellfish now, but it's not okay to be gay. I want you to understand the difference between the ceremonial law and the moral law in the eyes of Jesus. Here's what he said in Matthew 15, 19. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Okay? Sexual immorality. What does he mean by that? He means what any Jew of his day would have meant by sexual immorality. No one was selective when it came to this. This was a totality. This was a collective list of what? Of all the sexual morality laws in Leviticus. So when Jesus says that phrase, that encompasses everything that God determined to be wrong and disobedient with regard to sexual behavior in the Old Testament. So let us just walk through that and see what is still forbidden today in Leviticus 18. And you, you have a little bit of space there. I would write small and you can jot down each individual sin and the verse reference, okay, that is found in Leviticus 18. The first one that's still, still forbidden, okay? It was forbidden in the Old Testament, still forbidden by God today. The first one, incest. Thank God that's still forbidden. I'm glad he doesn't allow that today. I'm glad he didn't let, let that just go with eating shrimp. He didn't let that one go. Leviticus 18, uh, verse 8 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or another home. Sounds like a good thing to adhere to. The next thing on that list is adultery. In case you were wondering, some people struggle with this today. Leviticus 18, 16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not lay sexually with your neighbor's wife. Adultery, still wrong. 2023, still wrong. Polygamy, verse 18 of Leviticus 18, he says, and you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. See, even back in Moses' day, it was a no-no. So anybody in the Old Testament, in, in the age of law, in violation, still the case today. Okay, so if, you, if you're a radical Mormon sect, you're in violation if you adhere to this. Uh, polygamy, all right? Uh, pedophilia, child sacrifice, thank God, still wrong. That's, that's verse 21. And here you go in verse 22, homosexuality. And we've already read it. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Folks, abomination doesn't sound like a term that you just throw around. Sounds like a pretty serious term. It's an abomination to God. How serious is this? Well, it's lumped in with some pretty serious stuff. In fact, the next one in your notes is bestiality. Bestiality. It says in verse 23, you should not lie with any animal. We are parking this sin alongside incest, pedophilia, and bestiality in the eyes of God. Oh, adultery's in there too. Yeah, he takes it seriously. Absolutely, takes it very seriously. He doesn't simply suggest that we abstain from these things. He strongly prohibits them. Why? Because each is a perversion by Satan of the perfect design for sexual immorality or intimacy. Satan longs to distort God's gift of sexual intimacy by encouraging such immorality that Jesus condemns 
And the Bible is consistent from Old Testament through the New Testament on these matters. But I'm not gonna leave it right there. That's enough. I could say, and that's the word of God, and walk off. And you've got truth about what God says on the matter, but there's one more thing you need to know. In your notes, there is hope and forgiveness for anyone struggling with homosexuality. You may be here tonight and you're struggling with this. Nobody knows you're struggling with it. Or maybe they do. And you haven't cared until now. But you can't imagine a way out. Why the state might even recognize you as being married to someone of the same gender. That's not God's view. The state is not God. He wants you to be free. Because this is a form We don't compare opposition to homosexuality with slavery because homosexuality is a form of slavery. It enslaves. People get caught up in it and they can't imagine a way out. The Bible does condemn the activity. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Paul, he is unequivocal. He says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. In verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And by the way, We're not even talking about a scenario where you say, I want to honor God. I'm gay. I'm a lesbian. But I'm I'm just not going to act on those impulses. That is not what's being described here. And that's good news. Paul says, such were some of you. He's not saying, such were the actions that you once 